what a waste of time. The man in front of me had spoken for nearly an hour, and all I could think was, what a waste of time. Now, hopefully I'm not describing how you guys will feel at the end of this service. I'm not quite sure. I can't tell the future. But you don't have to worry. I won't be speaking for a whole hour. No, the specific story that I'm talking about happened nearly a decade ago. I stood in a room. Actually, I sat in a room much like this. And I listened to a man who was a missionary in the South Pacific give his explanation of his work for the past, that he had done for the past 20 years. At that time, I was just a kid. And I was listening to this man. I try to think back to uh, try to describe him. And to be honest, I can't think of anything. In my mind, he is kind of average height, a little older, um, average build, kind of average hair color. I think it's like light brown. Um, he's nameless, he's faceless, but this story still remains in my memory. So as he told us of his life, he told us of what he had done on the mission field. He had been in Indonesia for 19 years. He had learned the language, he had to deal with culture and customs, suffer the difficulties of being far away from civilization and far away from his family. And actually, the situation sounded very bleak. At the end of his, uh, at the end of his presentation, he told us one more thing that made it seem even more hopeless. He told us that in 19 years, nearly two decades, he had not seen a single convert. He was quick to say that there were a few, there were a handful, but in no way did it seem like there would be a local church in these villages anytime soon. As I thought to myself, I wasn't even 19 at the time, and this man had spent 19 years of his life in a far-off land with nothing to show. And my assessment of the situation was, what a waste of time. I thought to myself, 20 years, you've suffered so much. You should be in despair, you should have no hope. And then this nameless man ended his talk, and he ended it with a prayer. And the very first words he said were these. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. I was shocked. I was undone at the lack of my faith and my misunderstanding of what it meant to be thankful. Nearly 20 years in a foreign land with nearly nothing to show, he spent time in real squalor, in real spiritual darkness. The people had proven unresponsive. There were very few converts. And what did he say? He said, thank you, Lord. I didn't see it, not then, and I don't even understand it fully now. But to be thankful, to be truly thankful, is a response to the faithfulness of God. God is faithful, and remembering that, we can only respond in thanksgiving. Let us think for a second who we are. What defines us? I would argue that what defines us is the fact that we have all failed, that we have all sinned, and in this fallen condition, we are not only prone to sinful acts, but a sinful attitude. Everything is about us. We have worked hard. We have suffered. We have overcome. And when God blesses us, we often say too quickly, thank you, God, and then talk about ourselves. We should be proclaiming the faithfulness of God. We should know that we already know that this is good theology, but when we face times of great distress or even times of great success, if we fail to thank God and God alone, we failed in our witness. We failed in our faith. We have sinned, but God is faithful. And when we remember God's faithfulness, our correct response is to be thankful. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason, and welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm not the 
usual preacher. <laughs> so I uh, hope this doesn't reflect poorly on, or I hope that this sermon doesn't reflect poorly on the leadership. But if it does, then you can come back and, and realize there's a second chance for these things. Um, the scripture reading for today comes from the book of Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. If you're reading on a pew Bible, that can be found on page 952. I'll begin reading in verse 1, though, to give us some context. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and on all, and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about God was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of nor, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, on his law he meditates day and night. God, we pray that we would be that you would put a heart in us that yearns for you, that we would find delight in your law and meditate on it day and night. Please do not allow our flesh to keep us from your commandments or our pride from remembering your grace. Open your word to us anew, as if we were gazing upon this treasure for the very first time. In Jesus' blessed and holy name, in whom we place all our hope. Amen. So to begin, uh, this is kind of a one-shot deal. This isn't part of a larger series. So I think we have to begin with asking ourselves, what's the context of this letter to the Corinthians? Something that if you attend our hermeneutics class, then you'll realize the importance of context. So the author identifies himself as Paul. We all know Paul. Paul is a very famous apostle, a Jewish man who is converted on the road to Damascus. Very miraculous conversion. They're all miraculous. But this was, you know, especially. (laughs) So he lived as perhaps the greatest missionary ever. Wrote the majority of the New Testament and he died a martyr. And right now, we find this letter to the Corinthians uh, from Paul to a city which, where he had lived and he had planted a church. He, we know from Acts 18 that Paul had gone to Corinth during his second missionary journey. And in this first visit, he had been there for a year and a half. He not only preached among these people, he lived among these people. So Paul knew the Corinthians. He planted this church, and many that are reading this letter, those that are in the audience, were probably converted under Paul's teaching. Planting a church in Corinth must have been immensely challenging. We know from the history of Corinth that it is not what we would call a good city. It's a city that is it's full of idol worship and the desire for worldly wisdom. And these two things that seem kind of contradictory, also they're both incredibly sinful, define the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is also not healthy, not what we would call a good church. To be named after Corinth, perhaps, is not (laughs) a compliment. 
are to be named amongst the Corinthians in some respects. So later sections of the epistles, we find out that, of this epistle, we find out that the Christians in Corinth are plagued by the same problems of their city. There's physical lust, there's a desire for unholy knowledge, there's sexual immorality. There's a son who has his father's wife, so probably a stepmother. Um, There are also these false teachers, these super apostles who are undermining the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And there's chaos within the church. There are lawsuits, there's disorder, worship isn't done in proper ways, there's sectarianism, people are completely divided. The list of problems is very exhausting. And Paul is writing to this church, pleading with them to correct their ways, to reform, and to remember the call of Jesus Christ. He writes to them, and even though many deserve condemnation, he opens the letter, as we read, not with harsh correction, but with reassurance. God God called you. He had a purpose for you. And he wishes you grace and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the verses that we are examining, verses 4 through 9, we see Paul proclaiming his thanksgiving for the Corinthians. This seems very unusual. Please turn with me in verse 4, and let's ask why does Paul? Uh, why is Paul thankful? So let's begin in uh, verse four. I have a thing for it. Two forward. Sorry. Um, and see that God saves sinners. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, a question we might ask ourselves is, why give thanks? In fact, if we were Paul or in Paul's situation, none of us are Paul, but if we were in a similar situation with Paul, our, our answer might be that there is not a lot of reason to give thanks. The Corinthian church is large, it is rebellious, they deny Paul, and some of them even deny Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, it seems very strange to be thankful But then we read further, we read a little bit closer and realize that Paul isn't necessarily thanking God and uh, thanking thanking the Corinthians. He's directing his thanks towards God. I give thanks to my God always for you. We see here that Paul's thankfulness is directed towards God, and this should be encouraging for the Corinthians. We're not very far in this letter, but the condemnation that will come in further chapters uh, will certainly be very harsh. And those that preach other gospels and that are, def- that are defiled to sexual sin, they will be dealt with accordingly. But here he reminds the Corinthians that he is thankful for them. He's thankful to God for them. He does not try to flatter them by lying. He doesn't try to say, thank you, you're so faithful, when they're not. Or thank you for your good works when there are very few. But he centers on the root of all thanksgiving, which is the one true God both his God and theirs. And for this amazing truth of the gospel, that God saves sinners like them and like us. Focusing on God gives us thanks in all situations, despite difficulty. And that thanksgiving is not just momentary, it persists because God is persistent. In fact, he is eternal, just as the gospel is not merely this one-time pass that gets us into Christianity. It's something that we have to remember and model our lives after. So Paul continues to give reasons to be thankful. He doesn't just stop uh, with this opening verse. He provides further evidence and motivation 
for praise by listing some of these many blessings of God that he bestows to his people. So in the next section, we'll see that God blesses his children. And when Paul says that he gives thanks in the previous verses, he doesn't he gives thanks because of the grace of God that was given. The word grace here doesn't fit our typical understanding of grace. Usually we think of grace it is this unconditional favor given to uh, that's given by God. But in this case, it's actually something uh, a little more uh, general in some respects because the grace here is a list are types of blessings. So then we can ask ourselves, what are these types of blessings? And see, we see some listed here in verses 5 through 7, part A. Please read with me. Thank you that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any spiritual gift. This is a very simple list of some very profound things that God has done for the Corinthians. Paul is thankful that the Corinthians were enriched in all things. And we can think to ourselves, in fact, we know the context of the letter, we can ask ourselves, are the Corinthians rich in any way? Would we say that they are wealthy? Not especially. Would we say that they are wise? Certainly not by worldly standards. Paul's not speaking of these sorts of treasures. He's speaking of spiritual treasures. When he says, you are enriched in all things, in speech and all knowledge... It's not the knowledge that the world values. These are the doctrines of God, given to them by the apostle, that is Paul, and by the word of God, preserved both in the Old Testament and in these epistles. That's the true rich, those are the true riches that the Corinthians should both identify and value. They have trouble understanding them, yes. They actually have even more trouble, perhaps, practicing them. But it was given to them with a wonderful purpose. And in fact, they are very privileged where they are. Second, the testimony of Christ was confirmed among them. And similar, uh, similar question we might ask is, how exactly is the testimony of Christ confirmed amongst this church that's full of very sinful people? In fact, we might ask that of ourselves many times in our lives. How is the testimony of Christ confirmed when we live our lives, and sometimes we are perhaps consumed with sin, we think back perhaps, um, not even too far, not in our own lives and not in this passage, uh, to what it really means for the testimony of Christ to be confirmed. It is not that we are perfect. Primarily it is that the call of God was effectual. So if you think, I'll read uh, verse 2 from this chapter. You don't need to turn there right now. But to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. The testimony of Christ was confirmed. Did we forget for an instance that the church or the city of Corinth is sinful? It's incredibly without Paul having without the gospel having gone there, there would have been no no converts, no followers of God, no not even any moral people what we would describe as moral. And do we forget in our own lives that once again we were very sinful people to begin with. And the confirmation of the, the confirmation of the gospel is not that we are become perfect, but that God called us out of sin. This is indeed a very great gift and something that perhaps the Corinthians had forgotten. The last item in this list 
of blessings is that the Corinthians do not lack any spiritual gift. And if you know anything about, again, the epistle to the Corinthians, is that spiritual gifts is a weird subject to bring up with them. Because in later sections, in chapters 12 and chapters 14, we'll see that they're not using them right. They have prophecy, they have speaking in tongues, and what do they do with them? So if you had something as perhaps as amazing as prophecy or speaking in tongues, you should use that for the worship of God, right? But what the Corinthians have done is that they've taken spiritual blessings and they've used them as ways to boost their ego. They've used them in order to divide the church and to cause disorder in worship. And that's not how they were, that's not what they were given for. But these are still gifts of God. And we have to distinguish here between God giving us gifts and us using them incorrectly. So take, perhaps as an illustration, think about your small child. So, I don't know. Some people have to think back a little more. I don't know. I was never really... <laughs> that wasn't a nice thing to say. But I don't know. Uh, and this illustration is, is odd for me because I know nothing of sports, but I, I think it's applicable. It's that you're a small child and you're given a football. And you're given that football and you say, thank you, perhaps from your dad. You say, thank you, dad. I love this thing so much. You take it outside, you throw it against the wall. And then you go into your garage and get a baseball bat. And you hit the football with a baseball bat. And then you start jumping up and down on it. You say, I really love this football. Thanks, Dad. Well, you're thankful for your gift. That's, that's probably pretty apparent by all the attention that you're giving it. But you're not using it correctly. And so if your dad takes you aside and he says, now look, son, this is how you throw a football. This is how you catch a football. And you certainly don't jump on it. And... Unless you're in the FL, and then you just, that's excessive celebration. So, when you learn how to use the gifts given to you, you are not cheapening them. You're certainly not cheapening them. Do you love your father less after you learn how to use a football? No. I would argue that you love your father more because you listen to the instruction of how to use it and that you're more effective in the use of that gift. Now let's think, have we used the gifts that God has given us perfectly? No, I would say. I've certainly, I'm not, uh, I certainly haven't. I would argue that no one has. We will take our talents and we'll use them to grow our ego. We'll take our money, we'll waste it on frivolous things. We'll take the word of God, we'll read it, we'll argue about it, and then we'll disobey it. We in the Corinthian church are not that different. We are not thankful for the blessings of God. But there is incredible hope here. We are not completed works. We are not holy. We are not worthy. But God did not stop merely at giving us numerous blessings. And he also has a purpose that he will fulfill. God is faithful and he will complete his work. Please look at the second part of verse 7 to the end of verse 9. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus, Lord Christ, who will sustain you to the end, Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The first half of this section and the rest of the sentence that begins with, I give thanks to my God always for you, is incredibly long. Not the words that are contained in it, but if you think about it, I give thanks to my God always for you, and then... 
guiltless in the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Realize how many millennia that statement spans. Here are the blessings of God, designed to be given to believers for sanctification and evangelism. And realize there's a great deal of pause in between there. There might be a great deal of waiting. You want to see progress in sanctification? You may have to wait until you die. You want to see the kingdom of heaven on earth? You will have to wait until Christ returns. But know that in that day, unto death and beyond, unto the end of time, you will be sustained by God. What God has promised, he will complete. And we are what we are unable to do ourselves, ending of sin, spreading of the gospel to the nations. God completes by his power, and thankfully he gives us a role. God is faithful. God is faithful. This is the great promise, greatest promise, and ultimately the reason that we are to be thankful. The creator of the universe is faithful to his promise. Think back, perhaps, to the Old Testament. To Adam I will provide an offspring to crush the head of the serpent. To Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. To David, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. There was a promise, and there was a promise one, Jesus Christ. And now to his followers, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Don't let these promises fall on deaf ears, and don't let the scope and depth escape you. God is faithful to his people. Corinthians should, the Corinthians should know this, and they should be thankful, because though there is fighting, and there is anger, and there is wickedness and deceit, there is fear, and there is uncertainty, there is a list of sins that does not even fit within this time or this in this epistle, God is faithful regardless of those things. And we should know this as well in modern times as modern believers. We have heard these words, God is faithful, and so we must ask, are we faithful? When you are blessed, are you thankful? In fact, how are we to be thankful? If we examine our lives, we ask ourselves, are you faithful? Do we obey God? And I hope that honestly you would answer yourselves, no, not always, not even often. Are we proud about our faith? No. Or yes, perhaps. In which case, we have not obeyed God. We have not responded with true humility. Do we put ourselves above others? Are we wicked? Do we speak with anger? Do we look with our eyes with lust? Are we unkind to those in need? For all those in this room, the answers to at least some of those questions very immediately will be yes. In all those situations, we have failed. We are often ungrateful. We are still struggling with sinful actions and especially with sinful attitudes. And if you continue to fall into a pattern of sinful, but if you continue to fall into a pattern of sinful behavior, do not be discouraged. Fight, certainly. But realize that the root of one's victory is not how hard you try. The root of your victory against sin will have to be, if it is to be a victory, the promise of God, Jesus Christ. Be thankful and realize that the strength to fight is not within you. But it is, again, in Christ Jesus. And this is a statement of principle. I think often we talk about it as a statement of principle. Christ has saved us. But then we live, a, we live like that principle is a dead one to us. We say, God has saved us. We must try harder. 
in order for this to be a living principle, it should pervade our lives. So, if I have failed, preach to yourself, God is faithful. If I know, he has saved me, then therefore God is faithful. He will sanctify me. God is faithful. I must be thankful. God will provide victory, though it might be difficult. It might come at a cost. Sin will not continue to reign in your life, in the life of a believer. And crushing sinful attitudes, we must think to ourselves, in the, especially in this context, what does it mean to be thankful? I think it's helpful to think, first, what's contrary to an attitude of thanksgiving? And so the first thing that is contrary to an attitude of thanksgiving is that if we are defined by complaint, Complaining is an attitude that lacks contentment. When you complain and you are characterized by your complaints, you are saying to the world, God has not been faithful to me. These attitudes are all too common in the church, and often we seek to justify ourselves when we complain. I am just venting, I'm being honest. I'm just updating my status is perhaps one that would strike close to home. Evidence of our complaining, sometimes written on the wall, our Facebook wall. Or you could ask those that are close to you about this, and certainly they would respond if they were being honest. Yes, there's, there's, it's very evident that there's an attitude of complaint. We can share our concerns. We definitely should share our concerns. But it's not wise to spread envy or worldliness or self-pity. And if we speak ungratefully for what God has given, that's what we're doing. Complaining is poison. I might be very upset with my wife. I might have a very busy day at work. I might be in genuine need of physical provision. But complaint, either spoken or held within our minds, will poison our fellowship with God. And it will be, very, and it will be apparent. If not to God, then if, if not to our neighbors, then ultimately to God. I should be thankful for my wife. I should be thankful that I have work, and I should be thankful, first of all, that God has proven Himself faithful to provide in all all circumstances. Christ is a savior for sinners. That's the only circumstance that uh, I really have to look back to in order to be thankful. And there is a promise in which we place our hope that God will, com- God will complete in us anywhere where we are lacking. And we don't need to complain in all the parts in between. And then I think the second attitude that is contrary to an attitude of thanksgiving is when we, comp- when we despair. So I think on here, quite harsh in saying do not despair. Uh, that's not supposed to be something that condemns, you know, do not despair, but... With hope, do not despair. In hardship, our response should be the same as if we were in times of plenty. Even in, even if the hardship wasn't brought upon by our own sin, we should be thankful because God has already given so much. Remember that the Christian religion, Christianity, is not is not a religion where suffering is confined to the few. In fact. The pattern of salvation is suffering for many, and ultimately the pattern salvation came about through the most unjust and most cruel suffering that anyone could endure. That is the suffering that Christ endured on the cross. 
it wasn't done in isolation. It wasn't done in order just to be harsh. It was done in order to save us. And so if we need to consider, we need to remind ourselves of that suffering before we can pass, before we decide to choose an attitude of despair. And once you, once you reflect on that, if you are a Christian, then how can you possibly despair? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ promises these things to us. How can we possibly despair? And finally, this is stated in the positive, an attitude of thanksgiving demands confidence in preaching Christ. Let us not forget that we are commanded to work in the fields, to spread the gospel despite difficulty and sometimes an apparent lack of results. God is faithful, God provides converts, and all the while, even when fruit is not apparent or even present, be thankful. Count yourselves amongst the nameless, those who suffer in trials of various kinds, those who are afflicted, beaten and jailed and martyred, to whom, of whom the world is not worthy. You could spend decades of your life on some islands in the South Pacific with nothing to sow, or apparently nothing to show, and still God would be faithful. You could spend years and years in this city working and striving, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if things haven't worked out the way you wanted to, wanted them to, still God is faithful. Do not worry, preach the gospel, and none of it will be wasted. You may be here today and also and not relate to any of these statements. You may know someone that is constantly, or you yourself, might be constantly defined by an attitude that is unthankful and in despair. If that is the case, if it is perhaps, if these thoughts are on your mind that you do not have enough in your bank account, you don't have enough time to do the things that you want, that not enough people care for you, realize that this is not how you have to remain. You might have no peace with God, but know today that the same God that called the Corinthians, this horrible city full of sinners, also calls you. He calls all of us. Those, And he will sustain those who believe in his son, Christ Jesus. So whether you, whether you were to drown in a glut of material things or suffer your entire life in want, without Jesus Christ, you will not have peace. You will not have any reason to be consistently thankful. But with Christ comes salvation, and with salvation comes the promises that are associated. Discover the gospel of Jesus Christ that will always produce thanksgiving and produce a thankful spirit, because God is faithful. Give thanks to God always. It's kind of something that we might grow up with, but those are very difficult words to actually live by. We must be reminded to be thankful for God and for what he has done. He has blessed us and he will keep us. In our ignorance, he has provided knowledge. In our despair, he provides comfort. In our need for community, he has provided a church. In our sin, in our sin he has provided his son. God is faithful. Now, instead of closing today in a prayer, I'm going to read Psalm 136. If you'd like to follow along, you may. The song has a very familiar refrain, but as we read it, perhaps think about the, all that God has done. 
specifically in the in the lives of the or in the nation of Israel, but this psalm certainly points towards something more. I give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the greatest, the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host into the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estates, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen.